0: Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast, brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. Wow. Welcome to episode 100. Can you believe it? This feels like quite a significant milestone. I mean, if you're a community member who's been with us since the very beginning, we've come a long way together. And the podcast has evolved quite a lot since then. From our earliest days recording in a basement closet and editing episodes in GarageBand. Well, we're still recording in a basement, but what hasn't changed is why we do what we do at ELC. It's always been about knowledge sharing and creating conversations to help share stories and insights that make life as an engineering leader even just a little bit easier. And to remind you that you're not alone, that if you ask for help, there are hundreds of other folks in the trenches of leadership just like you who can help you navigate the unknown. We've got a special episode planned for you, and I'll share a little bit more about that in a second, but there are a few people that deserve special recognition, and that's our podcast production team. I want to shout out co-host and founder of ELC, Jerry Lee, for giving us the space to do this in the first place. He was really a champion of this idea from the very beginning, and I also want to thank him for putting up with sometimes my manic ideas and for always fanning the flames for new ideas to better serve our community. Jerry is somebody who's always trying to figure out what can we do, how can we do more, how can we do differently, and how can we do better? We've also had a few special people join us behind the scenes to help us create the best content possible. We have our podcast producer, Noah Olberdinge, Noah has helped us bring the very best out of our guests and share our content in more accessible ways. He's also been our video extraordinaire. So if you've enjoyed any content in any form, Noah has been the person behind that, helping produce that. So thank you, Noah. And I also want to thank our audio engineer, Dan Overheim. Dan's helped us evolve from closets and garage band and fumbling through how do you make things sound good. To a completely professional operation, he pulls out the absolute best sound from our guests. And he makes the show great to listen to. All of this in between gigs and tours with huge bands that he does audio production for. So I want to give a big thank you, Dan. So thank you, Noah and Dan, for making our show what it is today. And we're extremely grateful for all of you who choose to listen, who've joined us in that mission to support and empower engineering leaders and we're thrilled at the opportunity to continue serving you in that way for hopefully the next 100 episodes. So in honor of episode 100, we wanted to do something special. You may have heard, we're making the return to in-person with our upcoming conference, ELC Annual, on October 27th. Three of the core topics we're covering at the conference are leadership, career, and technology. To both honor those topics and all of the amazing conversations we've hosted so far, We've collected some of our favorite short clips from the last 100 episodes, sharing some of the insights and stories that we loved from the past three years. Our first clip takes us all the way back to one of our earliest conversations with Will Larson, CTO at com, discussing the perennial challenge that we face as engineering leaders, and that's our time, and focusing on what really matters
1: developed like a little bit of a hierarchy of what to focus on. It's not like a perfect hierarchy. It's like you don't necessarily do all of one bucket before you move on to the next. But I think it's a useful framework to just think about a given task. Does it fall into any of these buckets? And if not, it's probably not the right thing to be working on. But the first one's just like existential issues. And some companies have existential issues and some don't at a given point. But when I was at Dig, we were like, hey, we have five months of salary left. And if we don't get the revenues up from ads, in that case, like we're we doomed. And so that was like really clear. It's like revenues go up, more users, or, or like no money. And so that was like super helpful, just very clear. And then almost every company, even large companies that are very established, run into things that are just, like extremely problematic for the business if they're not addressed. I think things like GDPR are a good example of like a few years ago, a lot of companies had to get this done, or they had a lot of challenges in terms of operating in Europe, which for a lot of large companies is just not, you can't just like pull out of Europe even harder than getting GDPR working or getting a GDPR compliant solution. it's like pulling out of Europe somehow quickly, like that's incredibly difficult for an established company to do, right? And so I think things like that, where you just have to get it done and you can't not get it done without harming the business immensely. So existential issues is sort of the starting bucket. But then I think about like this idea of like places where there's a room and attention, and this goes back a little bit to the preening bit where oftentimes there's like opportunity and you're like, why is no one working on this? And so a good example of this could be durable reliability improvements, not just jumping into an incident to try to remediate it, but actually like understanding the root causes, figuring out the stability improvement or something to to actually prevent future incidents. And you'd be like, why is everyone only working on reactive stuff and no one's working on proactive stuff? Like here's a huge opportunity for me to show a lot of value. And sometimes that works out, but a lot of times people at some companies are like, hey, like, why are you wasting time on this theoretical work to improve something? Like we should just be shipping features and we'll deal with incidents if they happen. The the reason there's a lot of room to make impact is that there's actually like a, a lesson which is that there's no desire, there's no attention on the sort of work that you're trying to do. I think, unfortunately, a lesson a lot of folks have learned is like similarly like diversity and inclusion work is a lot of times of like, oh, no one's working on this, I can make a huge improvement here. But then they'll get like signals from leadership that actually this isn't valued. And so I think it's really important to understand like, what should be valuable, and then understand like what is actually valued and then make your own decisions based on that in terms of where you want to put your time.
0: Can you share a little bit more about your framework or about the iterative elimination tournament as a way to identify and roadmap some of those future existential issues to help people anticipate?
1: Yeah, this is a framework that I learned from one of my coworkers. I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago. But it was a really interesting idea where basically the challenge we had at that moment is that we were a Facebook advertising company and we needed to pull down a huge amount of data from Facebook APIs. And there were two different teams who wanted to build like their own solutions to the same problem. And one team was building this like extremely elegant, beautiful, like well-designed, hyper-scalable solution, but none of it worked at all. And it was like way behind schedule. This other team was building this like very clumsy, like unlovable solution, but it like it actually did some stuff. You could actually use it to like pull data. And so there's this kind of discussion of like, how do we think about these two different approaches and like, which one do we greenlight? Do we greenlight both of them? And so we kind of got this idea of this iterative elimination tournament, where it's it's important to do something that's good enough to like actually meet what you need today, because otherwise your project gets canceled, or in like a in like a, a basketball tournament or something, like you get eliminated and you don't go on to the next round. But also, like it turns out, getting to the next round isn't that valuable if you can't also win that round. And so I think balancing this idea of like doing something that's good enough to like meet what you need today, so the business stands up but also doing stuff that's good enough so that you're able to survive the next round as well. Maybe like a concrete example or another example around this is like your database is falling over and like probably what you wanna do is something like really clever, like moving to something that's like scales horizontally and definitely get a DB or a Spanner or a DB or something. But probably what you should do is you just take your heaviest table that's getting the most reads and writes and just move it to like a new shard. And it's like pretty ugly, it's like kind of annoying, it's a lot less elegant, but it's gonna work almost certainly much faster than migrating everything to a new, a whole new backend. And that then frees you up enough time to do something more sophisticated. But if you try to go directly to the more sophisticated solution, your company is like gonna have all these incidents that are, you know, depending on your company, like very damaging to you. And so just being able to think about in the time frames, like what do I need to do now to create enough space and time to do something better so that you can actually live both now, but also like kind of the next phase as well.
0: This next clip comes from one of Jerry's favorite conversations with Jean-Denis Grez, CTO at Plaid. Jean-Denis shared with us a ton of thought-provoking and sometimes contrarian concepts around org strategy. And this clip is about orienting your people based on time allocation versus functional allocation and how that could
2: help your organization adopt new mindsets and capabilities. So I call this... The portfolio theory of time allocation. Most managers use a portfolio theory in terms of resource allocation. And by resource, I generally mean people. I don't like calling people resources, so I'll have to call it portfolio theory of people allocation. What they say is we'll have 20% of our engineers working on brand new projects. And then we'll have 35% working on feature improvements to the core product. And then everyone else will be either keeping the lights on or making foundational improvements to the infrastructure, right? They have these percentages for these core categories of work. And then you go into quarterly planning and you're trying roughly to be in the percentages because you've decided that's the right thing for the business. Great. Okay. What if, as opposed to breaking people by allocation you broke people by time. So you said, what we're going to do is we're going to, for two months, we're going to focus on building new features. And then for one month, we're going to just focus on technical debt. And then for two months, we're going to build features. And then for one month, we're going to focus on technical debt. And so what you do is, as opposed to asking people to like wear all the hats all the time, what you do is you're like, you can get them in a mentality for a period of time that is optimized for a certain goal. And then you just tell them when it stops and then to endorse a different mentality. So the example that I have is from Dropbox. This is like 2013. So, you know, it's like seven years ago. It's a long time ago. At the time, Dropbox for Business was a small product. And it had been built by like a skeleton crew of engineers, almost as a side project. But it was growing. Like businesses wanted to use Dropbox. It wasn't just a consumer product. And so leadership was quite smart. And they were like, hey, listen, we need to have more people work on Dropbox for Business. And so they hired this guy, Matt, who ended up actually being VP of engineering at Dropbox. Really fantastic engineering leader. And typical, by the way, fashion at the time, like Matt had been like a, like a VP somewhere. He'd like been a VP of VMware and like a principal engineer. And he started as an IC for his first like two months. And then he was like a line manager, right? Every manager at Dropbox at the time, it didn't matter what you did before. You like had to start as an IC for a bit, which is fine. And then you had to be like a line manager before you could be a director. Like the rule was we just didn't hire directors. We like didn't hire lead of leads into the org. It was, it was honestly, it worked well. Like you could look at the team that was at the time that joined that company and it was, it was a who's who. So Matt joined and if I remember correctly, it was like no one had answered like support tickets. They were like the backlog of bugs was like hundreds, okay? Because it had been built as this kind of side project. It, you know, it hadn't had a full-time team and so he was starting to build a team around it and it was just people did not have the muscle. People were just building features. People didn't have the muscle of like, hey, there's a Jira ticket, something is broken, we need to fix it, right? All the PMs, everyone was just like, let's build features, right? Let's build the next things that people want, but not about the quality of the core thing. And so Matt was like, no, he like stopped all the feature work, right? And he said, we are just going to do tickets. And I think if I remember correctly, I think the rule was that everyone would wear ties to work, but right? these are people wearing t-shirts. And so they were tights to work until they got to like ticket zero or like it was also there was some launch associated with it. So he'd gotten this rack of ties with this other guy called called Tito, who, who's like head of engineering, they got this rack of ties. And so people would come into the team, and they would like put in the tie around their their face in the t shirt. And they were just doing it until they got to like, ticket zero or whatever it was. But it was for a period of time. So no one could be like, Oh, we're always going to be like a ticket answering kind of org, right? There was no fear of that. No one was different. People thought it was like, cool, we need to do this, this is the way to like rally and do it. So for a period of time, people internalized this totally different mindset. And what's cool is coming out of it afterwards, people then understood why tickets were important all the time. So you'd like you done this time isolation of this very different kind of work that normally people wouldn't have respected or thought it was great. And then you get the benefit afterwards that people understood why you always had to make some time for tickets, or else you're going to have this weird, like, ticket death march that would happen. And I think it's a very, very powerful concept.
0: This next one is a community all-time favorite. It's about how to get unstuck in your career with Wade Chambers. I love this conversation with Wade and continue to revisit it probably monthly because it's all about how you can identify your gaps and then intentionally accelerate your growth. Enjoy this clip.
3: I like the uh, quote that's attributed to Einstein of a problem cannot be solved at the level it was created or the level of consciousness that created it. And so oftentimes you find individuals that are stuck because they don't get it, if they got it, they would move forward. And so they're stuck as a result of not getting it. If you are listening to this, and you feel like I should be further along, I I feel like I've been repeating the same thing just in a slightly different company for the last few years. And I've gotten a little bit of a pay bump every time I've went right like the, the real underlying competencies haven't changed my hope would be is that you can find somebody who actually cares about you, and that you can have this discussion that helps move through it. And I think that they would largely look like, let's try and be very conscious about what we want to be true. What do you want to accomplish out in in front of you? What do you want to be true that isn't currently? Do you want to be, you know, the VP of engineering? Do you want to be a staff engineer? Do you want to be And maybe it's not title-driven. Maybe it's like, I want to be able to accomplish this. I want to be able to build this type of a solution. I want to be able to influence executives. I want to be capable of leading a team in, in this new way. If you can identify what you want to be true, then I think that you can step back from that and say, who do you know that like exemplifies what you wish was true? And not from the standpoint of like measuring yourself against them necessarily, but like what we're trying to do is look outside of yourself and say, what causally makes them successful in that role? And if you can get to, ah, right, they've got really good leadership skills, or they're very good at cognitive reasoning, or they have the ability to inspire others, or whatever that case is, if you can kind of go through that and break that down. Then you can start to identify, is there a gap between where I'm at and that truth that gives them competitive advantage in that role? If you can identify that gap, then you can start to break it down and say, oh, neuroplasticity is a thing. I need to start working on this. Let me identify some of the most leveraged, portable areas of growth and focus there first. Can I find a coach? Can I find an opportunity to practice? And just start chipping away at it.
0: Have you ever wanted to be behind the scenes in the room when a big decision or a historic deal was made? Our conversation with Melody Hildebrandt was such a unique look behind the scenes, and it's one of the best stories I've ever heard about how engineering can be a strategic partner for some of the biggest business decisions that get made. But what I didn't expect was how Melody got in the room by crashing meetings.
4: The way I started to do that was literally because
5: I was in a meeting and I was briefing like technical thing to a group. And there was a group after me that was basically going to brief to the next group. And I was like, you know, can I stick around this meeting? I'll sit in the back and they're like, yeah, sure. I sat in the room. I mean, this is a Lockwood Murdoch meeting. So it's like, it took like a little bit of chutzpah to like just ask to stick around. <laughs> and I did and I literally that has led to me like co-writing this business, right? They're like, oh, why were you there again? And we started talking and they're like, oh, you seem pretty smart. And then, like, next thing you know, like even if like initially you might not have as much to contribute and I'm very comfortable asking to stay in the room. And I've done that a lot. And just I feel like I could learn. If I could just be in the room, I won't be disruptive or whatever. And then maybe actually I do say something because I think generally you don't want to be totally silent in the rooms because people are like, why are you here? So you say one smart thing. And that's it. Shut your mouth the rest of the time. And that's my advice. It's like ask to stay in meetings that you're not actually invited to
0: organizations are made up of humans that are making decisions based on the data they have. If you don't think about how that data is being seen or understood, you're gonna have a bad time. This is one of my favorite takeaways from our conversation with Jan Chong discussing managing up. And there are three fundamentals that she shared that have dramatically shaped how I think about communication. Enjoy this clip. When you think back on all of your different past experiences, what have been some of the keys or the fundamentals that you found for managing up?
6: I think there's kind of three basic pieces that are at least how I think about it. One is the visibility of the work that you're doing and how much the person, in just case your manager, really understands it. In engineering, we're usually lucky in that for a really long time in our careers, reports to other people that have been engineers. And so they get the fundamentals of writing code and what are the challenges of bugs. And how you know you have to refactor and how you have to keep code living, and it needs tending. That's actually not truly understood if you're not an engineer sometimes. Then there's How does your manager actually judge your work to be successful? And this is the piece that people usually have a sense of the visibility and understanding, but they stop thinking a little bit about, okay, how is it evaluated? Because we know our work so well that we think, oh, okay, if I've done a good job, it should be self-evident through the work. It should just be really obvious that this is now good and possible. And we don't think, oh, do other people have that same frame to think about it that way? And then the last one, which is even more, I think, advanced, is how does the work that you're doing solve the problems that your boss have or can help them in general? I think people, now that I am in a leadership role, people come pitch me ideas all the time for projects or things we should do. And I think they sometimes leave a little bit frustrated if I'm not like, oh, yeah, sometimes it's like, oh, it's a good idea, but just not important enough right now. And that's a great answer because you see your slice of the world so much, but you don't always see the whole slice of the world. So people are generally focused on solving their own problems and they don't realize, hey, this problem is just not that important actually relative to everything else that's going on. Or this, problem, this solution actually creates more problems from your boss than other places, um, which is really, really common. But if you can align that and create solutions that solve both your problems and your manager's problems, those are gold. Like I'll fund those in a heartbeat.
0: Tension between product and engineering is just one of those eternal issues. Our episode with Jeremy Henriksen focused on how to align and scale product and engineering. And for those who know me and have ever shared challenges around product and engineering with me, know that the takeaways from this episode are some of my most reference of all time. This next clip dives into the common tension points between product and engineering and what you can do to anticipate and solve those problems as they come up what are some of the common tension points while scaling that you typically see between product and engineering? Or what can you do to anticipate those and solve those problems as they come up?
7: Yeah, there are a lot of tensions. (laughs) But I think the classic one, of course, is like features or speed of delivery versus like long term technical orientation slash like sanctity. And I think very early in a company's history, there's like a lot of there's a lot of truth to that, right? Where it's like you got to move fast just to kind of prove out the product and establish product market fit. Once you've established a certain degree of product market fit, I often find that this question of speed versus kind of quality or or long term orientation is like just a, mostly a false trade off. And so I think that tension which can exist, the way I like to try to resolve it is to is actually coming back to the the earlier thing I said around like prioritization that fundamentally. It can't possibly be the case that these things are actually intentional. One of them is going to be important just to, to ensuring the survivability of the company. And another one's going to be important to ensuring the survivability of like the business, right? <laughs> One and the same. And so, The way I like to try to work through those tensions is by like talking it through and understanding what the real import of those things are. And I think people are particularly those who are like on the ground doing the actual engineering work. Right. One of the things I always have to try to remind myself is like the world that they see, their context is is in this thing right now that they're trying to solve. Their context is not in the three years from now. Here are all these other problems that you're going to solve. And similarly, like a product person who's like, well, here are all the things that we're going to need to do to win in the market. Here are these features. They don't see like the detail, like this is the thing that a new engineer is wrestling with. And it's like really hard to understand the code and to onboard because there was like this old system built like three years ago that doesn't really work anymore. And if only we rewrote it, we'd like maybe be 50% more efficient. And so like bringing those two things together in the same room at the same time on a regular cadence rather than in a reactionary mode to things that are just happening. I think is the way that often helps resolve some of those tensions. How do you set up that
0: conversation? Like, is there a specific framework that you found or agenda to help both sides bridge the context gap and share different perspectives and priorities and sort of cross-examine those things?
7: Yeah, the way I like to do this ultimately, and this is incredibly iterative, it never starts here, but is to have a periodic, quarterly or, or whatever, more frequently depending on how fast like externalities move. but. Quarterly, monthly, whatever, essentially, review process where you do the three month forward planning. In crypto, in particular, by the way, planning more than three months forward so it wasn't really possible. <laughs> uh, but same thing, same thing, by the way, is true at Rippling. It's just like there's so much going on that you can get a good three, maybe six month view, but like getting a view out further than that is generally unrealistic. But having a cadence where people know that yes, at the beginning of the quarter or the beginning of the month or whatever, we're all going to come in. We're going to do this difficult, but hopefully not too time-consuming exercise to like re-rationalize all the kind of things that we know about now relative to the things that we knew three months ago. And once you've established that as a pattern... And once people recognize the value in it, it was some time, but it actually made their lives easier. It made engineering smoother because there were fewer asks from product in the middle of two weeks after the planning or whatever. And so they can operate more efficiently. They can actually get projects across the line. The debates have already been had. That really gives people confidence, I think, to be able to kind of come in and, and do that on a repeated basis. And then there's a secondary benefit, which is that having done it once or twice before, there's now a bunch of shared context among the people that were having that debate. And so the next time you come back a few months later, you're starting from a higher point of kind of consciousness and understanding on these topics. And that's institutionally self-reinforcing as you scale. And it creates some resilience as leaders change, right? It's not like the engineering manager of that team is gonna be the same one forever. I mean, it's unusual for that to be the case. So someday, you know, that person's probably gonna change. And the fact that there's been this process that has helped institutionalize the rationale and the memory and the context for all these things goes, goes a really long way. I make sure that kind of on both sides of that equation, like engineering to product and product engineering, that you get people to understand each other's lists of priorities, which of course starts with having lists of priorities, right? So not everyone has the discipline of saying, yes, here is like force ranked the set of things that I think we need to do to make the product succeed, or force ranked the set of things I, need, I think we need to do to scale engineering. And taking both of those lists and pushing them together, right, saying, no, no, there's actually a single set of priorities and having everyone sit in a room and really understand each other's points of view. And it's not about making people agree with the other person. It's about having that shared context and and that shared ability to reason about priorities under a world where there's really limited resources.
0: I think we all dream to build something so impactful that it can endure for over 20 years. That's why Melissa Bindi's story behind Amazon Apollo was so incredible, because for literally decades, the technology was and still is in use. Here's Melissa sharing the story of some of the lessons that drove Amazon Apollo's enduring
8: success. And what they wanted me to do was to make website pushers BitTorrent. And this seemed like a fine solution if you define the problem as the bits aren't moving fast enough. But I looked at it and I said, I don't think this is a bits moving problem. The issue really is this websites.a and .b thing. Like really we should have more flexibility. January comes around, the company wakes up and discovers that I'm not in fact doing BitTorrent. And I said, but we made it so the transport is pluggable. There's an API. So someone else could write a BitTorrent client for it. I still actually have in my (laughs) mind sitting at that meeting and and getting the look from management. And they said, okay, well, here's the deal. Like you have, I don't remember if it was two weeks or four weeks, probably four weeks. You have four more weeks and then you need to like ship or shut it down. I said, oh, absolutely. No problem. So we worked another four weeks. It still wasn't quite ready. I think we pulled something together and pretended that it was like kind of an alpha version. So in order to launch it, we went after the most ignored team in the company, which was the supply chain team. And we said, hey, we've got this new thing. We will cater to you. We will do this for you. We will help this work for you if you'll be willing to be our first customers. And they said yes, because they were getting ignored by the rest of the company. And so we got them on board, got them successful, and I ended up meeting probably every single person on Amazon because I pitched this to, I did training for every engineer. I pitched this to project managers, TPPMs, whatever we called them back then, which may still be what they call them, pitched it to VPs and sold everyone on this and then left Amazon about five years later. It was still going strong and then realized it was still going as as the years passed and It completely supplanted Houston. And as far as I know, they never did write a BitTorrent client for it because the problem was not moving bits. The problem was configuration management. I think one key thing we did was to not make it dependent on broad adoption. So one team could use Apollo and it didn't force other teams to. I think possibly due to sort of social networks and network effects, people often model software these days as, oh, it gets better the more people who use it. But that also means that your initial few customers who are going to be the people who are telling other people how awesome it is, don't get the full experience. So Apollo worked even if it was just a single team. And we went after not the most shiny team politically. That would have been going after the website. We could have had the attitude of, we got to get the website on board, we'll never be successful. Instead, we went after the team that was completely ignored, the team that was struggling, the team that was desperate for someone to help them.
0: So can you tell us a little bit more about the whole selling and pitching the idea and building buy-in for the the Amazon Apollo solution?
8: Everyone was in Seattle back then, but I traveled to to every single building we had. I gave presentations. I would do one-on-ones. I would do whatever was necessary. And I tuned my pitch to the audience. So rather than talking about why I thought Apollo was good, I talked about what they would get out of Apollo. So as a dev, you didn't care about your manager being able to trace why you had an outage, but you really cared about getting your code pushed. And this was before all of this agile stuff was quite as cool. DevOps wasn't even a word. The first time I encountered it, it was a friend saying, hey, this DevOps thing, I think that's what you were doing at Amazon. Like, oh yeah, yeah, that is what we were doing. So, you know, the idea of a dev being able to control their own future and push their code, that was so exciting. And then of course, like everyone else panics. And so you point out, oh, but it's okay because you can roll it back with a push of a button too. and. I gather that Apollo has huge integrations and stuff. Internally, we didn't try to build all that on day one. We focused on a problem that needed to be solved, and we didn't spend energy building frameworks or integrations, or the one thing we did was make the transport swappables that we could plausibly say that if someone wanted to build a BitTorrent client, they could. But the default was using SSH and SCP. So yeah, we didn't overbuild. And we sold, focused on the people, focused on what value they would get out of it. You know, there's an element of marketing that I think tech folks can easily fall into. I have that superior technical solution, therefore people should use it. And this was, let me go solve a problem for you and show you how I'm solving your problem. The other thing is we didn't try to justify a big team. We built the first Apollo with the three of us and and a handful of other coders in our team. And we did it by me, I was the manager at the time, choosing to stop other work. So I think also people have a tendency to want to build everything at once. They want to build this massive framework. They're thinking too big at the start. And we built something that solved a very clear, isolated problem. We had all of the theory worked out, but we didn't build things we didn't have to build. We were heavily influenced by an early project manager I worked with who called it the Jedi principle. You make just enough decisions to implement. And so anytime we hit something, we would actually stop. If we were arguing, we'd stop and go, well, wait, hang on, do we actually have to decide this now? Or can we kick this down the road? And so that helped us avoid getting too tied up in philosophical arguments.
0: One of the common skills that I've seen across engineering leaders that I admire most is their ability to translate engineering to the business and translate the business to engineering, which is why our conversation with Andrew Lau and Eli Daniel at Jellyfish was such a blast. Not only did I get a role play, a cantankerous, uninformed CEO, but their ability to bridge the gap between engineering and the business is incredible. Here's a clip from that conversation. Next question. So this is uh, a little bit more in the in the style of, of work and invisibility into engineering work. What's Sandy working on? She's a 10Xer. She can't be wasted. Can't she just do this thing over the weekend? What comes up for
9: you, Eli? <laughs> it's a, by the time you're getting that question, like that's not the thing that somebody, I mean, That's the thing that they think they're asking for is couldn't Sandy do that thing over the weekend? But by the time you're getting to the point where someone is coming in and asking you to micro rearrange who's doing what on the day-to-day basis, there's something going wrong already. So figuring out what it is. A lot of it to me is, is there a perception that you've got wildly different capabilities that there's somebody sandy is the star who can get anything done whereas this other person on the team or other people on the team are schmoes who aren't reliable or aren't getting good stuff done like hey hopefully that's not actually true if it is if that's actually true that's one set of problems if it's not actually true there's a perception problem about why does somebody think that's true but then i do think that the root of all of it is probably that. It comes down to, as Andrew was saying before, there's something that's not getting done that this person wished would get done or or possibly everything is not getting done fast enough. You know, this person has a mindset of the Tiger team who just goes real quick and bangs stuff out, just get shit done in whatever way. And that isn't, mechanics. And maybe for good reason, that's not the mechanics. Because like, no, we're not trying to just bang out a thing. We're trying to build something that we're going to put in front of lots and lots of customers and needs to be robust. and And that that takes time. So to me, it's all about there's a direct answer to what Sandy working on. But I think then there's a unpacking of let's talk about again, how people like what it takes to bring a village together to actually get this thing out the door and why having one person go hero it as tempting as that may be today is not the answer that's going to allow us to, in a sustainable way, do all the stuff that we need to do over the next days,
10: weeks, months, years. Patrick, I was going to say, I am, like, I'm agreeing with Eli, and, and I would just say, like, this particular one, like, I've been first class victim to this question, like, when I was on the other side of this. Like, I think this shows up, like, just more side commentaries, like, this generally shows up more with actually founder CEOs, like in the sense where they harken back to a time when they actually knew all the engineers, and they know said Sandy, um, and that Sandy was the hero that did a lot of things here on this stuff. And so, in some ways, this is the danger. Sometimes you have you have CEOs that think they know how engineering works, right? And so, in this uh, like the, this kind of situation, like whether you know you call it the ten x scenario, pick pick whatever flavor or thing you want, but like. This said, CEO thinks they know what a 10Xer is. They read about it. A friend told them about it. This is like a big thing, right? And so they're really like fixated on that particular thing. And so they've fundamentally believed that the way forward. (laughs) is like all things are about sandy and that stuff and it's just like deep down ingrained in their thing and back to the whole thing you're right there's something they want that isn't getting done and so this is their magic solution which is calling back to four years ago this is what we did it was all about sandy and that stuff and and, and it's not just romanticizing they're trying to problem solve you know and again this goes back to your job to figure what the problem was to begin with which is we're not getting this thing done or it's getting done the wrong way or whatever the actual thing is and so they're kind of fixated on this this thing and the 10x part is the rhetoric that goes around it and, and be clear like i've worked with people that are clearly 10xers that are much more prolific than others and and, and there's many reasons why it could be skill set it could be just nature of history of the code base there's all these reasons why in those things I, I think the particular on this one around 10xing though is i think again it goes back to some form of distrust something actually not actually happening but like i'll just speak for things at scale one might have an amazing developer we, we all have worked with amazing developers before Maybe you were lucky to be one in the past, right? Like at some point, as your business grows, it will go beyond that person's scale, no matter what you do. Like even if they're like the biggest hero, at some point, I don't, I don't care if it's like they're better than 10 people, they're better than like. but some way you will cross a threshold where you have to rely on more than one hero. It just has to be. And I don't, I'm not going to pick the threshold for any individual company because I don't know them, but there will be some point where that's the case. And so then it's about the team and the process and and like how we actually can go beyond that. Because if you're stuck behind one person, then your company will only scale as far as that person can go.
0: This next one is special because Farhan Thawar was actually our first ever interview on the podcast. Farhan is an absolute archive of creative and bold strategies to recruit. And this conversation was all about how speed is a competitive advantage, but it also completely shifts the paradigm behind evaluating performance and what a great candidate is. This clip focuses on how to increase your pool of candidates and what happens when you give people a shot.
11: I have heard a lot of stories that um, companies at a certain size, they have a urgency to hire a senior leader and they're looking for people with uh, pedigree and uh, on paper, The person they hire is supposed to be very successful on their own, but it didn't work out for things that they cannot think of ahead
12: of time.
13: It happens all the time when somebody with the right pedigree comes in and doesn't work out. Like it happens all over the place. And if you're going to go through the process anyway of bringing someone in, evaluating, and then exiting them, why not work from a larger pool? Why work on this small competitive market of people with the same pedigree when you could uh, be using a different market? Like a, a less, I mean, in some ways, less competitive, right? Because maybe they haven't done it before. That was the key. Like at some point, like even here's a good example, right? I never hired like a thousand people before going to Extreme, right? Like I didn't know. Like who knew? I the biggest team I ran before Extreme was fifteen people, one five. So who knew that by trying these crazy experiments that we were able to scale the company so dramatically, and that I would be able to scale along with that? Nobody knew. I think that's true of lots of lots and lots of people. The you know, we didn't get to this, but one of the things that we 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 do well at Shopify is we ha- we look at we do like this thing called like backward facing promotions. Like we look to see if somebody's been acting at that see more senior level over a sustained period, and then we and then we promote them versus trying to like do what like most companies do, which is like the Peter principle. Like you 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 promote somebody and then you're like, whoa, it's not really working anymore because the person is like in a role that they are trying. And so it's a good way to be like, oh, you really wanna be, you know go from like level six to level seven cool here's all the things you got to do to act like level seven and then if they do those things and they are sustaining it and they're enjoying it and everybody's feeling like it's successful you can then promote them and if and, and guess what paradoxically they may not like level seven which i've seen too they're like you know what i can do it i don't really enjoy it i'm like cool like just crush level six and now there's no like demotion there's no like title change there's nothing yep. so it's, it's actually quite uh, successful
11: and it simply applies to the transition from an engineer to a in manager. So it doesn't work out, doesn't work out, and go back to your purpose hero, which is a very good thing. It's not supposed to be perceived as a demotion.
13: Exactly, and that's why I'm actually a big fan of like the acting titles or interim titles for people to try things out. Again, I would love for people to try. I think that's the way in which people can really figure out. You can figure out if they're suited for the role, if they're ready. And I've seen lots of movement. I mean... One thing we say at Shopify is it's a jungle jungle gym. It's not a career ladder. And the jungle gym is you go up, you go sideways, you go down, you go into a different playground. Like you try all kinds of things in order to continue your, your learning journey. And I think a lot of people just feel like it's like, oh, well, I was senior developer. I now have to become like staff developer. Otherwise, like my career is not progressing. And I've been happy to see that it's not true here at Shopify. People like, you know, we had a VP engineering become an individual, an IC, like amazing and celebrated. This is the first time I've ever heard about
0: backwards promotion. So my mind is being blown. And it makes so much sense because it, if you want this role, act as if, and then right. your behavior then earns you that particular position. So I feel like that's such a better validation of somebody's ability to take on a leadership role or a different, different skill set.
13: And then again, paradoxically, you may not like it. <laughs> like it happens. Yeah. People are like, you know what, actually, I did the things And, you know, like, for example, I had to work cross group, and I got this project going, whatever, and it was super tiring, and I don't enjoy it. I really just want to focus on my craft. I'm like, cool. Now we know, just continue crushing it down the technical path. You don't have to.
0: And I think at a high level, too, like the thing I keep going back to is what you said earlier about the importance of expectations. And in a way, when I'm thinking about like the recruiting process, the hiring process is one of the biggest competitive advantages other than speed is like making somebody feel valued or important. And even like in looking at this example of a backwards promotion, you setting in clear expectations of that behavior, that action makes them feel valued and important because now they have agency in that role and they feel like they're being invested in. And then they, like you said, in the hiring process, they have an opportunity to have a shot and that makes them feel valued and important.
13: Yeah. And it, again, you're going to get all sorts of non-traditional people in those roles because people are allowed to try it.
0: The ultimate success of a manager is to grow someone out of your team and into the next phase of their career. And to me, Tara Ellis is the epitome of that type of leader and why I loved our conversation with her so much. Here's a clip from that conversation that will inspire you to be a champion of career growth for your team.
5: I tend to think about it as just really pragmatic. Everybody wants to grow in some way. And most people, you know, in order to do that sort of growth, they often, they can't stay in one place, right? I know this is the truth for myself. So why would it not be true for my team? And so I really try to normalize that. When someone joins my team, I try to spend a fair bit of time with the expectation that you are not going to be here forever. I hope you are here as long as I can keep you as long as our journeys kind of go together. But at some point, whether that be a year, three years, five years, you're going to you're gonna outgrow this. That's just the nature of work. And so I like to be really upfront about that. And I also like to prepare for that. So I do that in kind of two ways. One is with my engineers is that I know you're going to want to grow. I want you to grow. So let's have proactive conversations about what that looks like for you. And that can run the gamut. Sometimes people, it's just really about skill acquisition. So like I had an engineer when I was managing a front-end team who really wanted to get more into mobile development. Okay, so how do we give you opportunities to stretch kind of that muscle in a a space that you don't know about? That's something I would think about skill acquisition. I've had engineers who are like, I'm really bad at public speaking. (laughs) I want to be able to, to hold like a conference talk and I don't know how to do it. Okay. Let's start with me and then we'll move to a team meeting and then maybe we'll move to an all hands and we'll work up to it. And then, of course, you know, the proverbial, I want to be a manager, <laughs> which is always like, do you know what we do? I mean, you think you might want that. And so that one's a little trickier, but in a, in a much longer process. But again, it requires some kind of forethought and effort. And so all of this really is predicated on the, this is going to happen. So why don't we just do it together?
0: <laughs> you know. Confronting the inevitable in a right? really honest way. I like way. that,
5: confronting the inevitable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: so is this a, like an upfront expectation set in the first conversation? Yeah. When do you have that growth conversation?
5: I don't do it right away. I usually wait the first quarter. I let you get your feet mm-hmm. kind of under you. What I do like to do, though, is let them know it's coming. So when we've gotten to that stage, then I usually how I introduce it is like, hey, for the record, I'm someone who cares a lot about growth. And I think it's important, and I think we should talk about it, and we should be very explicit about it. So I want you to think about what are the areas, what do you want to grow, what do you want to learn, what do you want to do? I'm not asking for a five-year plan, you know, but what direction? I don't even know. Do you want to be a leader? Do you want to be a technical leader? Do you want to be a people leader? Do you want to just... I've had a lot of engineers who are like, I really just like doing what I'm doing. And I'm like, that's great. So think about that in our next one-on-one, I'm going to ask you. (laughs) So you have two weeks and it's okay if you don't know right away, but this is kind of the moment that we're going to start talking about this. One other thing that I think is also really important in this is I also really try to set the expectation that, hey, we are partners here. I'm not driving your career bus. I can't do that for you, right? But I can be an excellent navigator. I could tell you, oh, you should make that right over there. I don't think it happens as much with senior engineers. Generally, they kind of know what they want to do in some fashion. Some are really buttoned down and some are like, ah. But there has been times where they're like, I don't know. You tell me what to do. And I'm like, I can't really tell you what to do. I need you to, to tell me what you need and then I can support that. So I think it is actually really clear to get that expectation out so that they're not looking to me to kind of solve that for them. I'm a facilitator.
0: Throughout Plaid's wild growth the past 10 years, Samir Naik has been able to reinvent, transform, and evolve his career alongside the company. To me, this is the type of career growth that most of us hope for, but is so hard to nail. Samir shared so many great insights on the phases of how businesses change in hypergrowth. Here's a clip from that conversation.
14: Yeah, I think about Plaid really in three phases. So phase one, and I'll go through the phases kind of quickly, but phase one, just getting to product market fit. So that was sort of the 2013 to 2017 phase. Phase two is after having achieved product market fit, starting to scale and starting to hit some of these scaling challenges where you're getting more pull from customers than the team can really keep up with. And then phase three is that the company really is Scaled pretty significantly, multiple independent business lines that are each growing quickly. And you really need to start figuring out how you scale velocity when there's so many things going on. And you're also at the point where you haven't yet made a ton of investments in in platforms and you really need to start doing that in order to gain that velocity. So in phase two, we had moved to teams. And a lot of that was because we didn't have consistent ownership over products. So we moved to mission-based team models, which kind of solves some of the problems of long-term ownership, stable interfaces, and teams being able to balance feature development versus long-term foundations. But there's still some challenges with this model, and so some of the challenges ecosystem is developing. Really quickly, So there's going to be inbound needs that don't clearly map to any of the existing teams. And now that you're in this team-based structure, you're starting to sort of optimize your roadmaps locally within the missions of your teams. But then you see these cross-cutting needs or these needs that aren't covered. So inevitably you end up layering on this system of global prioritization on top of the local prioritization. And one of the failure modes that we kind of started seeing over and over is we get through quarterly planning, And then a need would kind of come in that was cross-cutting. And we inevitably had to ask teams to deprioritize stuff on their roadmap to fund these projects. Plaid is very good about thinking about global impact. So it wasn't hard to do. But what it means is that it stopped teams from making really long-term investments in foundations or taking on longer-term big bets that would span multiple quarters because this was sort of happening every quarter. And then because this is happening, it's still requires high coordination costs, right? Like many teams have to talk, you have to get all the managers in a room and make some of these trade-offs. And so you're kind of back to the point where like your coordination costs are are almost exponential with your number of teams. So then you start to see velocity slowing down because of these bottlenecks. And the coordination cost to resolve these bottlenecks is super costly. So some of the like measurable things you might see where you're, you're like, okay, I think we're clearly on track to go to the next phase is how many products require changes to the same underlying systems and how many conversations does that take to resolve many teams building the same types of logic. So we started to run into cases as we got to 20 or 30 teams where some of the communication wasn't scaling and many teams are thinking about, oh, we need to add text messaging infrastructure. There's no platform to do that. Let me just build this for my feature. And then, you know, I think the velocity angle, are we starting to realize impact of projects too slowly? So if you kind of look back at your roadmap deliverables over the trailing 12 months, like, do you feel like you shipped impact to customers as quickly as you wanted? And sometimes in in the moment when you're going through OKRs, it feels like you're checking off OKRs, but really, do the customers feel the results of that, that work? And then, you know, I think we also did a ton of pulse surveying. And try to get qualitative data on like how do engineers feel about tech strategy and vision and the ability to move quickly and you know as you start seeing those numbers start to go down over time like that starts to lead you to saying like okay we need to invest more and in sort of stable foundations and have clearer like ownership boundaries with business units and that that's what led us to partially to, to phase three.
0: You know how there are just certain quotes that live rent-free in your head? The next clip that we're about to share from our conversation with Richard Wong is one of those for me. In our conversation with Richard, we covered all sorts of ways to address the dilemma between speed and quality, and it was an absolute masterclass in executive-level
15: thinking. Enjoy the clip. So the statement that we define, at least in Coursera, is people should feel to run as fast as possible as long as you meet these like three quality objectives. So we have some minimal bar about our quality objectives. Like for example, availability is one thing that we measure. So each teams, they own a set of systems to serve the learners. And each of the systems, they have a set of APIs. And we measure the availability of these APIs, like the error rate of these APIs. So we basically say, run as fast as possible as long as the availability of your service is more than 99.95% on an ongoing basis. So that actually means if you are 99.96, then don't spend much more time on improving the availability of your system. That means you are at approximately the right balance on what you want to achieve, like go and run and build as many features as possible. But if you are right now at 99.90% of availability, That means you're probably off-balance, that means you run too fast. Maybe you're skipping certain design review, you're skipping certain unique tests. you're skipping some scalability implementation in in your product, like end result is that you have more errors than what is acceptable. So that means your team needs to slow down. I find it a very effective mechanism because, again, like when you have a set of very talented engineers in your organization, they don't wait until a crisis happens, right? Like, a lot of time they are very smart. They can tell that like if I try to do something, that will be a consequence two months from now. And nobody wants to get to the jail that said, okay, the weight is too low, that now I need to stop working on building new, cool, innovative features for two months. Like Nobody wants that, right?
0: What could possibly go wrong in a large-scale, multi-year cloud migration? Wendy Shepard shared with us tons of great ways to navigate massive projects like that tackling topics like when to fix forward or roll back, Here's a clip from that conversation, sharing some of the key lessons that she learned.
4: When I think about some of the things that have gone wrong in previous cloud migrations, one in particular comes to mind at a past company where we were doing the migration and everything had been working fine in staging. We'd spent several months getting ready. And when it was time for launch, we launched on the new platform and we started onboarding customers and everything seemed to be going fine. It was going fine for a couple of weeks. We were high-fiving, we were celebrating our successes. And then in week three, everything started going wrong. Our performance was starting to cause outages and data loss and data lag and customers were getting very frustrated. We were getting paged at all hours of the night and we ended up spending two solid weeks, I think, which were nearly 24 um, by seven days, myself as well as my team trying to figure out what was going on and what was going wrong because we hadn't seen anything like this at all in staging. And in that particular migration, we ended up having to stop and roll customers back to the previous platform and go back and spend another couple of months getting to the bottom of what was causing our performance issues and then do a relaunch. So the decision to move back in the short term with that set of customers was fairly straightforward. Where the debate came in was what to do next. And that was a combination of me as the engineering leader, our lead architects, and also some of our like key executives, finance, other decision makers. And so we had a series of what I would say architectural engineering meetings where we laid out the pros, the cons, and really had to bring data forth explaining what the issues were. And so that's always a big challenge because sometimes you don't know exactly what the issue is and your stakeholders want you to know exactly what's wrong, when are you going to fix it? How long is it going to take? And so part of the conversation was before me coming back and presenting to the various stakeholders is getting that data together to the best of our ability. And then coming back with a a series of trade-offs, options, scenarios, and then letting ultimately the stakeholders choose that scenario. This is something that happens pretty frequently in different types of projects. And what I like to do is put the hands in the decision makers, but I like to bring multiple scenarios of here's the pros and cons of each scenario. And as an engineering organization, here's what we recommend. And of course, we're usually hopeful that the stakeholders will go with our recommendation, but sometimes we have to look at the different trade-offs that they bring as well, as far as finance or customers. But it really involves all aspects of the organization there. Customer support leaders, the product leaders, the finance leaders, the CTO and rest of the C-suite, as well as the engineering and architectural leadership.
0: One of the most critical things to scaling your leadership and creating autonomous teams is your ability to operationalize the principles and values of your engineering organization into everyday actions. Our conversation with Sri Viswanath deconstructed tons of the approaches that he took and shared one of the best processes that I've ever seen around defining career ladders as the company matured at Atlassian. Here's a clip on how Shree operationalized his leadership principles at Atlassian.
16: So this was about three years ago. And we had finished a major project called Vertigo. We had moved to cloud. And after that, for a year, we had started developing features on this new cloud platform. And three years ago, our Sev1 2 incidents started going up, like creeping up. And it was not good enough for us as a company, especially for our customer's incidents are really bad. Like it's hard on people internally, but even worse with customers, right? You don't want to have incidents, but it's a gray zone, right? You are having one incident per week, maybe, or maybe once a month, and then it creeps down to three weeks, then it comes to two weeks. So there needs to be a moment where you have to figure out, oh, wow, that's not good enough. What happened three years ago was we had this uptick in two incidents, and we called a five alarm fire and when we caught the five alarm fire we knew something was wrong and we had to fix it but we really didn't know exactly all the things we needed to do it was a moment as the saying goes never waste a crisis because you can do things that you can't do in status quo mode so what we did was we went back and we did a number of things to be able to set us up for the long-term better trajectory in terms of things. And all the things that we did, and I'll describe you number of things that we went through, would only be possible if we could create an open, transparent culture. And also, I guess the process that we chose led to autonomous teams. The very first thing that we did was we had to define the priority, right? It's extremely important for the teams to understand there's always 10 things coming to the teams and they need to know, oh, there's like 10 things, which one is higher priority? So the first thing we did was to clarify the priority for teams. And we said security is number one, reliability is number two, and then everything else. And every single person in the organization knew this, including not just in engineering, right? It's important to have... Everybody in the company bought in, right? When you think about a technology company, literally the whole company needs to be aligned with the priority order. So if you had asked the executive team or marketing team, they would have all said for the technology side of the house, it's security number one, reliability number two, and everything else after that.
0: There was this inflection point late 2021 and early 2022, where you could tell that Almost everyone across our industry was experiencing some different form or, or level of burnout. And that this had become almost a systemic issue that leaders needed to address. And you saw companies addressing it in a bunch of different ways. Our conversation with Erica Lockheimer, Sabri Tozen, and Lori Allen at LinkedIn was really special for me because we got to take this holistic perspective of different leaders trying to address burnout at all levels in their organization in a really meaningful way. And they share tons of great lessons and insights. Here's a clip with their approach to detecting and identifying early signs of burnout in your team.
12: I mean, there's basic one-on-ones, right? Because I think sometimes we focus on work and and Sabri was alluding this to before, but we actually should repurpose them more about what is the well-being of that individual? Because even though you may have listening sessions or forums, how uncomfortable if you have something very personal that you wanna share in a public forum, that's really, really difficult. But if you're in a one-on-one and you offer like first your vulnerability and sharing how you're feeling or what you're going through, guess what, that opens up a door for them to feel comfortable to share the same. And I've had so many personal one-on-ones, especially during this time, that we've laughed, we've cried, we've gone through so many different emotions. And if anything, that brought us so much closer. I think we all try and be perfect and buttoned up, and I've leaned on Sabri and Lori so so many times, Tearing literally. And you know, you think, oh, they're VPs, they got us all figured out. You know, we're all broken sometimes in some ways. So it's okay to, to share that. And so I think it's just important. Those one-on-ones are our key. That's where you're gonna get the authenticity uh between two individuals.
17: Yeah. One other thing I would add, Patrick, I was just thinking about this. A tip that I would apply that I use for my team is I actually started to ask my team because I can tell that. Their energy was different. Their, you know, the way they entered the room was different. And it wasn't just an individual. It was like the whole team was starting to feel burnt out. They were just like, this is a lot. So one of the things we actually did was just we took one of our staff meetings and just said, hey, let's look at everything that we have on our plate. Let's prioritize together what has to get done. What can we decide as a team to hit a pause? What can we decide as a team that we're going to put to next quarter? Whatever those things are. So, that it could really focus in on who has capacity, who has bandwidth, who doesn't. Because again, those individual triggers of where it's driving burnout could be different for each person. So, it actually turned into a really open, honest discussion about did we put too much on the plate? Because again, like Sabri said, you look up, you're in your office till six, seven, eight o'clock at night because you're not setting adequate boundaries. And we just started to incorporate those conversations with the prioritization exercise. Once we had it out on the table, we could also say, others could volunteer to help each other. I'll take this from you, I'll do that. How could we redesign this project to be a one to many approach versus all of us having to do it? And it really helped us to kind of parse through new ways to deliver instead of just saying everybody had to own the same things. But it started from that energy in the room just being like, whoa, there's not a, that the balloon was deflated as I call it. It's just walking in where everybody's heavy. And just figuring out ways to put a little bit more air in the room, pump it back up a little bit, but being open to new ways to solve. If you
0: want to unlock the highest performance and the best results from your team, one of the most critical paths to do that is to eliminate workplace injustice. Or as Kim Scott and Trey O'Brien say, get shit done fast and fair. I love this conversation because I felt it empowered me with really specific tools Tactics and the courage to address workplace injustice, be it in the form of bias, prejudice, or bullying. Here's a clip from our conversation.
18: You can't possibly do your best work if you are being harmed by the way you're being treated by your colleagues. And there was a period in my career where I felt like my employer had worked really hard to hire the very best, smartest people, and then they told half of us to sit down and shut up. And that was like, why would you do that? Like, why don't you want me to do my best work? One of the things that I really am focused on is, I think we all know, especially in tech, that humanity's superpower is its ability to collaborate. We can get things done together that we could never dream of individually. And so you want to create organizations that are optimized for collaboration and that don't allow one person to coerce another. I have really never met anyone who genuinely wanted to work in like a 1984, everybody's marching in lockstep kind of environment. We don't want to demand conformity. And yet we so often do without even realizing what we want to do is respect individuality. So how can we offer some respect, some collaboration? So we can get shit done fast and fair.
19: Yeah, and then also as organizations continue to diversify their teams and think about representation and acknowledge so much research and data that's out there that says the more diverse perspectives you have on your team, the better your solutions are going to be, your revenue is going to increase, like the data is there. However, if we're going to bring in these underrepresented professionals, We have to just acknowledge what does inclusion mean and how do we, again, optimize for our talent to be the best that they can be?
18: So I think the root causes are bias, prejudice, and bullying. And I think too often we conflate these three different things, and and they are very different. So bias will define as not meaning it. Prejudice will define as meaning it. And this was tricky for me. I mean, very often in my career, I want to believe no one could actually, but they do, unfortunately, actually consciously believe in one group's inferiority sometimes. So you got to confront that. And then last, bullying is just being mean or meaning harm. Once we can disentangle these three different things, then we can know how to respond both as individuals, as leaders, and as upstanders.
19: And then when we're also talking about these root causes of workplace injustice, we also have to name, like, what are the different roles that people play? And so the roles that we talk about are the person being harmed, an upstander, person causing harm, and a leader. And these roles are very different, and they also, you know, warrant different responses in these situations. So, you know, we talk about if you're a person who's harmed, you choose a response. And this is the one, this is really important because this is the only role that we feel you have a choice. But we want to empower folks and leave folks with the tools that you don't default to silence. You'll hear us talk about defaulting to silence a lot because too often we default to silence because you don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. But if you're a person harmed and you choose not to respond, that is your choice. But in all these other roles, we really want people to at least have some type of idea or some type of tool that they can refer to on how to respond in those situations. So for an upstander, you know, their role is to intervene. And an upstander is a bystander vendor that does intervene and goes into action. And the other thing to call out about being an upstander is, You're not like swooping in to save a Denzel in distress or something like that. You're being an upstander to the injustice, to the injustice and you're intervening on behalf of the injustice that's occurring. Then for the people who are causing harm, their role is to listen and to address. And this can be challenging and this can be difficult, but really coming from a place of empathy and understanding to listen and address. And then finally, leaders have a role to prevent these workplace injustices from occurring. And we know that they may happen, But if they do happen, what are the mechanisms that we can put into place and the structure so that we don't reinforce this behavior or perpetuate this behavior within our organizations and teams?
0: If you're anything like me and extremely averse to conflict, you're really going to like our next clip with Jordan Adler. Jordan hosted a workshop at our latest summit on conflict optimization. And there's a very distinct reason why he talks about conflict optimization versus conflict resolution. You see, conflict is inescapable. And this conversation with Jordan will help you create an optimal environment for healthy conflict.
20: I think when it comes to conflict, if you have a workshop and you're saying to people, hey, come to my workshop, I'm gonna teach you how to resolve conflict. You're really letting people know that you're focusing on what happens after conflict has taken place. Whereas when you think about conflict optimization and the focus on the workshop itself is definitely interested in what are all the things that happen before conflict even takes place? How do we avoid the kind of interpersonal conflict that would requires resolution in mediation of some kind? Although I do cover some of the the techniques and processes for mediating conflict after it has occurred. Ultimately, I think what's important And and as engineering leaders, our responsibility is to create an environment that optimizes conflict. And the correct amount of conflict is not zero. If there's no give and take, if there's no mutual uh, alignment of interests, even in cases where they are not intrinsically aligned, you have to work and collaborate together to make them aligned.
0: Healthy conflict is a part of the everyday work that we do. I love that idea of the optimal amount of conflict is not zero. I think it's a really great way to to phrase that. And so I think what's really special about this, Jordan, is you bring a lot of your own personal experience as an engineering leader to this and like the deep curiosity around this. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how conflict became important to you and how it's really shown up for you as as an engineering leader. Because I think, as we've talked about offhandedly, in general, like there's a certain Culture or challenge about being a technical leader, that oftentimes we maybe are a little bit more conflict averse. Can you talk a little bit more about your observation with conflict in engineering leadership, what people typically default to, and then why this became important to you?
20: First of all, there's a selection bias in engineering leadership, as there is in any kind of leadership. And I think the selection bias here in our industry is towards folks who are agreeable, reconciliatory, who care about each other, and are thoughtfully inclusive. The problem is that when you select for people like that, sometimes they can be conflict avoidant. And conflict avoidant isn't optimal, right? If you're not able to advocate for the interests of your team, if you're not able to find where your mission statement, your team's mission statement conflicts with another team's mission statement and then collaboratively reconcile that, then you're going to get run over roughshod. And I think... I experienced a lot of this in my time as an individual contributor at Google uh, and at other workplaces where we didn't have the kind of clarity of responsibility or kind of delineation of team mission statements that were mutually exclusive and comprehensively exhaustive in a way that enabled us to function organically independently of each other. And we had a lot of times where, okay, these two teams are basically trying to do the same thing. We have to compete with each other while also collaborating with each other. And that's a very challenging
0: line to walk. Powerful questions are about asking the right question at the right time that unlocks someone's thinking and truly gets at new information. With more powerful questions, though, comes the need to be comfortable with silence. In this next clip, Alexis Rask shares how you can create space for better input from your team and get over the discomfort of silence. One
11: thing that holds back people asking those questions is the fact that sometimes it feels very uncomfortable asking those hard questions because it takes time for other person to think about it. So there will be potentially a long silence during the conversation, and that's not comfortable. So how do you advise people to get over that?
21: Just get over it. What's so wrong with silence? What's so terrible about that? That's my powerful question back to those people. What is so terrible about silence? in the
11: past how do you see what helps people to they know they don't feel comfortable they don't have good reason to answer your why question but what are the things you have them to do to sort of have a real feel and then now they know how it feels they know it works then that's a start and from there they can build out more exposure potentially getting used to it anything you can share there
21: just like any muscle memory you know, repetition is what build up endurance and strength over time. So even starting with what I was calling earlier, more of the curious, more of the open questions and going after the fact and reviewing your meetings mentally and going, wait a second, I think I missed the depth. (laughs) What's the additional question I should have asked? At what point in that meeting to take this to a different level of understanding, not because we want anyone to beat themselves up about it, but it just can be easier that after the meeting, you sit quietly, you mentally review things as many of us do anyway and go, okay, what do I wish I asked? And at what point? And write it down for yourself and start logging it. So you have a log list of some powerful questions that you necessarily didn't apply real time. And so then the next time you have some meetings coming up, whether that's a team meeting or a one-on-one or some high-stakes conversation, prepare ahead of time. What are three really meaty, powerful questions that I want to introduce into this discussion? And so you're relieving yourself of the pressure there of having to react all in real time. You're setting your intention that I go, well, listen, you know, I know that I have a new hire starting this week. And so I'm going to ask them. What are your hopes and dreams and aspirations for yourself in the big picture, and how do you see this company as helping make that a reality? I can prepare for that. I can know that I want to ask that person that very meaningful, powerful question without sitting in the room. So going back in hindsight and finding the flags for yourself And preparing in foresight with some things that do feel more comfortable are two of the practical tips. And then the very hardest part might be asking the question in the room that you've prepared for and then zipping it. But practically speaking, you can give yourself a tool to use, such as taking a sip of water. Or jotting a couple notes. So if I say to you, "Hey Jerry, listen, you know I've noticed that we've had some friction in the last couple of meetings of ours, and you don't seem to like what I'm recommending here. Can you tell me why?" And then I sit and drink some water. At least you have something to do, and it's your and you know you've you've decided in advance I'm going to ask this hard question. And then I'm going to drink my water. doesn't mean it's not going to be awkward that there's a silence. doesn't mean we all of a sudden all became comfortable with silence. But you've bought a little bit of time and you've given yourself something and you're trying to give the other person their space to think it all out and start talking.
11: I think you made a really good point of the benefit of giving other people the space while taking a break for yourself, because the other person, they don't feel the level of comfort to take time to think about the real answer. Instead, they will just flesh out a really quick answer, defeat the purpose of the question. So maybe it's important also to intentionally give the space, for example, in your case, you mentioned drinking water, but make it really clear. Don't try to answer my question right away.
21: Feel free to take time. Take your time. Take your time. Hey, I have this. I have this big question to ask you. Why is this so important to you? And take your time. Take a second. I say this all the time in coaching. Hey, take your time. Don't give me the first answer that pops in your head. Can you sit with this for a second? Can I let you sit and jot some notes on a piece of paper for a minute? And then once you're ready, then go ahead and answer my question. So, okay, the coaching construct is a different one. So I, you know, it's natural that I'm going to say, I want you jotting this out, but you can steal from this. Hey, take your time. This is a big question. Take your time. You know what other secret, powerful, wonderful tool we all have at our disposal? What is it? It's another key sustaining life function. Breathing? Breathing, yes. If you go like this, here's my question for you, blah, 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 blah. (sighs) What just happened?
0: I feel like I just relaxed three notches down the dial.
21: Okay, but do you know I didn't tell you to breathe? I just breathed, and then you emulated me. So I also relaxed three notches down the dial. I sat back and relaxed and you emulated me and you relaxed three notches down the dial. So just by breathing, I'm calmer as the listener who asked the question and you're calmer as the person who has asked the question and oxygen lets your brain think. That's why we think poorly when we're in fight or flight because all the blood rushes out of our brain and goes to our extremities. So our actions and our physicality is good, but our thinking is less good. And when we breathe, then we have lots of oxygen in our brains, our thinking. So take a sip of water and take a breath. These are life-sustaining habits and actions anyway, and they are fuel for good thinking, good dialogue, and holding space for the answer.
0: Have you ever been overwhelmed by uncertainty? I have. I'm sure you have too. The last two years have been crazy. In one of our earliest conversations on the podcast, David Silverman joined us and shared his experiences serving as a US Navy SEAL officer and some of the most important lessons he's learned about leading through uncertainty. In this next clip, David shares a ton of great tactics for what to do when you're overwhelmed by uncertainty.
22: A lot of the clients that we've talked to and work with, if, you know, the leaders, they're trying to figure out, well, how do I get, you know, people out of their malars? How do I get them back you know, on their on back on their feet again, and sort of being proactive about you know just attacking their day on a daily basis. Like how are they going to get up every day and attack their day with a certain amount of conviction and manner to restore back to productivity? You know, in, in SEAL training, the one common denominator the everybody that makes it makes it through isn't how physically fit you are. You know, it certainly isn't your your social background because none of that is matters once you're, once you're in the training, I I think the one thing that you have to be able to do though is compartmentalize physical and mental pain. And uh, what they're going to do is they're going to physically, you know, take you to a place of of pure exhaustion, regardless of, you know, how, how gifted you are. And uh, they're going to mentally make you have a conversation every day to determine whether you still want to be there or not. And they're going to make you revisit that conversation over and over and over again, until they know with conviction that you have the mental fortitude. Uh, to be a part of, uh, of this brotherhood. And so what you become really good at is compartmentalizing uh, the physical and mental pain. You, you, you start thinking in, in terms of, of, of minutes and, and hours instead of days and months. If you step back and say, I've got seven more months of this, again, you start to get a little overwhelmed going, oh my God, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to sustain this for seven straight months. But if you actually think about it as far as, I just got to get to lunch, and then I just got to get to dinner, and then I just got to get to breakfast all of a sudden it starts to become very achievable. If you look at any one evolution that you do throughout the training, it's actually not that hard, right? When you add it up for seven months straight, uh, it, it's, it feels a lot more intimidating. But if you focus just on the immediate task at hand and you start to go back to your base fundamentals of how you kind of get through it and you shelve out the rest of it, all of a sudden you start to get um, you know, some clarity. So I think to me, understanding how you compartmentalize what's probably coming at you is all these different factors, how you basically put those in a different, boxes and focus on the box that's most important to you right now. Once you get that done, prioritize the other set of boxes and then focus on that next. That's an incredible, important and valuable skill you had. I think moms uh, and dads that are actively managing kids do this on a regular basis, right? Because I think the kids, especially when you're home with them for this long, they can, it can be a bit chaotic. So you've got to be able to toggle between things. But you know, the whole idea of multitasking is really a myth you know, you really have to figure out how you can kind of focus directly on the thing. In order to do that, I think you've got to be able to not get distracted with the other pains or miseries that might be coming at you. So it's a common skill set that they they drill into you in the teams. And what's interesting is when you get down downstream in the combat or other stressful conditions, you notice very quickly who gets overwhelmed by the situation, who's able to keep their wits. And a lot of this because they're sort of conditioned to saying, all right, I I can figure out the stuff that's actually mission critical right now and focus on that. And the rest of the stuff I'll, I'll attack when I need to uh, at a later basis. How do you
11: practice that? I know it makes total sense, but sometimes when we try to compartmentalize the pain, we still got distracted because the potential uh, stress and uh, the other things that are you know, coming to our mind uh, all the time. So what kind of technique do you use to sort of help people to practice that skill and uh, apply it smoothly so day in, day out?
22: Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, so the one way you could look at it is from a solution set, like I've got to solve a specific problem and move to the next one. And obviously, you know, that's helped. But really, really, uh, what we focused on a lot, both in the military and now with clients is how do you establish capability? How do you establish almost like a lifestyle or culture change that enables you to consistently be able to deal with with rapidly changing situations. So I, I like, in the teams, it was all around your ability to shoot, move, and communicate. So you obviously had to be physically fit and sound. So you weren't, you know, you, your, your physical conditioning was in a place where that wasn't a significant factor in stressful conditions, or at least if, if it was, you were gonna have an advantage over, over your adversary. And you had to be able to know that your comms and your contingencies were gonna work. So you had to have plans that you had drilled in multiple times. So that way, the cognitive load and stress has been reduced. And you're able to basically process at or faster than you know. In this case, the competition or the adversary. So when I think about lifestyle, I think about you know almost like personal habits and discipline on a on a, on a regular basis. So you know we, when we went into COVID, I knew this was going to be disruptive to my family. We the first thing we did is we sat down and my wife and I made a we call it a battle rhythm, an operating rhythm for our family. We said, all right. We're going to figure out Monday through su- Sunday, what are the main things we need to get accomplished every day? And then we've broken down to like small segments. Now, to be honest, we're, we're probably pretty far from the original plan is what we set out to do. But the fact that we went through the process of saying, we know this is going to be hard. Let's break it into, in our case, you know, anywhere from 30 to 90 minute segments and, and space those over the course of seven days, we can start to start to get at it, right? Admiral McRaven wrote a book um, who we used, you know, was a guy that I had served under, uh, in the past. Uh, he, he was, the, the, he gave a speech to the American Texas called make your bed. And he wrote a book about it. And He talks about like, look, if you get up every morning and you just make your bed, right. You have accomplished that small task and feel good about it. And then from there, you can kind of build on that. And I, and I really think that's the same thing. You, you've got to compartmentalize your days into small sprints and each sprint you basically attack. Uh, Then you stop, you pause, you reflect, and then you figure out what you're going to do next, and you move on again. And and if you're doing that on a disciplined basis, I think you'll be surprised how quickly you kind of find yourself getting back to being normal. You're able to adjust as conditions change to 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 you know what sort of the different stresses coming at you, and and pretty soon you'll find that your productivity starts to pick back up again. We're winding
0: down episode 100, and since you're still with us listening, you know that there were so many great lessons, tactics, and approaches to implement. But one of the few guarantees in leadership, life, personal growth, is that you will fail. So to close, we thought it apropos to share a clip from our conversation with Eddie Kim on removing the fear from failure and why you should prioritize recovering from failure over avoiding failure.
23: I think the solution to this is it's just very cultural. You can't really go back to a world where it's like, okay, we're getting rid of the risk team, we're getting rid of the payments infrastructure team, we're going to combine them into a single team and put, you know, MBA person in charge of it to make the calls. You can't really go back to that because you you need the specialists, right, at that scale. And I think the solution is you just kind of have to culturally change through a variety of mechanisms and tell people that it's okay to fail. It's okay to, obviously there's a range of failures, but there are certain things where, We want to be more tolerant of them, and the most important thing instead is to, one, recover very quickly from those failures, and two, make sure you're learning and you do something to minimize the impact of those failures in the future. And if you give people the permission to do that, then the thinking really changes, right? They go back to that ownership mindset that you had when you were much smaller, and the way people behave is kind of like that one team aspect when you have that combined payments team, even though, you know, they're now split into smaller specialist teams. So it's really, to me, it's about changing the culture. We say in in our engineering world, we're prioritizing MTTR over MTBR. So MTTR is mean time to recovery, which is like the average time that you can recover from those failures. We want to optimize around that over mean time between failure we are optimizing less like the time between when you have failure events we care much more about recovering from them in fact we celebrate when people fail and are able to recover quickly this happens and it's very very concrete in the engineering world because you have things like outages right the site goes down a bad commit goes out and nobody can use your product anymore and you can just you know within five minutes get that back online revert the commit deploy again that's a huge win that we'll celebrate at Gusto. And just you know, setting that culture is so, so important to make people not kind of get over that, out of that myopic view that starts to set in and really think about, okay, what is the best thing for the business?
0: That's great. So I think sharing those is a great transition because I think what I would love to dig into now is like the tactical how of how you made this pivot to change the organization from like a structural and operational level. What was the aha moment for you as the CTO of Augusta, where you realized we need to make a pivot in our approach? And then what did you do as a result?
23: There were two aha moments for me. One was, I remember this day very, very well. We had an engineering all hands meeting. And as usual, I was leading that meeting. And I usually like to end my all hands meetings by just sharing a few thoughts that are top of mind. And typically, Every month, I spent a lot of time writing it down, preparing. Again, it goes to the, the, the polish that I put into these presentations. And for whatever reason, I didn't have that much time the night before. I, I think I just had too much work or something else going on. And I came in like pretty un- unprepared. Actually, I, I know exactly why not. I, I was actually working late in the office that night. And I remember as I left the office, there was a team of engineers that were still working in the office, working on something. And so that kind of like stuck with me. Until the next uh, morning, where I had this all hands presentation, and I was kind of winging it, and, and, and basically said because all this thing around like fear of failure and you know having turned into this 800 pound gorilla that we always made fun of when we were smaller was top of mind for me. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I can tell you how it landed. It landed very negatively with most of the engineering team. The way it landed was that because I also mentioned the the team that was there late at night and like said, look at those people, that team, that they're great. And the way it landed was that what you value is us staying in the office late at night. And then I said another thing around like I used the word rage fixing. I wanted people to rage fix things. My intent there was trying to say, you know, get out of the myopic view and if you see something even outside of the scope of your team, what I really meant is something like if you're passionate about something, turn it into action. Don't let the boundaries of your team hold you back. We're all owners here. But it didn't land that way. Rage fixing is was definitely not the right word choice. And it came off as like, just go, don't get permission from anyone else, like anti-teamwork, just go in and do whatever you want if you think it's right. Obviously, was not a not a good all hands. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely a very low moment. And I got lots of feedback, lots of conversations afterwards. The interesting thing was that it did give me an opportunity to actually share what I really meant. I got people so mad that they wanted to talk much more about it. And so I had a chance to really, first of all, apologize for like how what I had shared landed incorrectly, but then also share what's really been top of mind and what's really been bothering. Me. And other people would say, you know what, that's kind of what I've been thinking about, too. Like, I'm I'm so glad we're talking about this. So that in itself was like in a kind of a meta way was a great example of how polish can sometimes get in the way of uncovering these sorts of things. I definitely Regret the way that I had shared things in that all hands meetings. But at the same time, the silver lining there was because I was so unpolished that it really did trigger a conversation across the entire engineering team of this thing that was top of mind that may not have been triggered or have like evoked such a strong emotional reaction had I been super polished and well rounded and said it in a way that didn't really. You know, agitate things. The second one was actually after that, I decided to have an offsite. We decided to go to Denver, which is where one of Augusta's offices is, and we had an offsite there. And true to form, I had planned out this two day offsite down to 15 minute increments. We were going to kick it off with some opening remarks. We were going to brainstorm some topics. We would break out into smaller groups, and people would brainstorm within those smaller groups. And then, like, 45 minutes later, we would come back together and share our votes and go on a board. And everything was like super, super structured. And interestingly, I actually, it wasn't me that gave the opening remarks, but I had one of our engineering leaders share who had just joined some opening remarks. But that initial like block of time, which is actually meant to be only five minutes, someone asked a question, we discussed it, it turned into 30 minutes discussion, and that 30 minutes turned into a couple hours and all of a sudden, my schedule, my perfect schedule of how this offsite was gonna run was just thrown out the window. But the conversations that we're having, the questions that were being asked were actually fairly good. So I just thought, let's just let this run a little bit longer. And there were moments where, you know, again, people sometimes said the wrong things, they rub people off the wrong way. But the thing that I really love about Gus culture is like strong sense of humility, strong sense of empathy. So anytime someone this is a term we use now stepped in it, like you just stepped in it, you said something that you didn't mean to say, you know, retract it, apologize, clarify, and then move on with that, right? That was something that happened in this like several hour long opening remarks. And ultimately, this opening remarks, it turned into a discussion that happened the entire day. And nothing after the opening remarks, we didn't follow any of that stuff. But it was a really good conversation around this exact topic which is what I had the offsite originally for, was, was around how do we increase our velocity as a engineering team at Gusto? And at the end of the offsite, as I typically do, I'll ask for feedback on how do you all think that this offsite went. That is the one thing on the agenda that, by the way, we actually did do at the end. I asked people for feedback. And honestly, I was expecting the worst because it was kind of uh, it was disorganized and people flew out there. They took time away from their family. And I just thought, you know, in some ways I just wasted everyone's time. And what I heard was actually very much the opposite. People said for the first time in a long time, I felt like we had really engaging, meaningful conversations about the right things. And in fact, there was one person on the team that was still relatively new to Gusto and was actually not sure if they had made the right choice in joining the team. And he shared that after this conversation, I'm like super engaged. I really understand where we're at and what we need to do now. I'm much more excited than I ever was to be at this company. And so it even had the effect of reengaging people a little bit more. So this it was another example of how the polish, the structure... The fear of failure that I went in with. I think being okay with a little bit of going over time, letting people speak a little bit more directly about what's on their mind versus what you have on the agenda, things like that can actually lead to fairly big breakthroughs that you may not really expect. If you love these clips and
0: want more, or you want to catch an episode you missed, we have all of the episodes listed and linked in our show notes. So you can click in, check them out, add them up to your playlist. I wanted to say thank you again for joining us on our journey to empower engineering leaders. Our community simply would not be what it is without leaders like you who care, who want to create better products, better companies, and support the people that they have the privilege of leading. So to close episode 100, thanks for listening to the Engineering Leadership Podcast.